Good morning. This is Darrell Gunter, your host for leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM and streaming on the net at WSOU.net. Well, I tell you, it's always a pleasure to have a very dear friend and colleague on the program to talk about a topic that we both love, scholarly publishing. Uh, welcome, Mr. Tony O'Rourke, who is the Vice President of Partnerships at Inago. Tony, welcome to the program. And thank Good morning, you for, Yes, thank you for interrupting your, your, your very busy day, you know, to talk about this great STF event press release for Inago, See the Future event for the global region. So before we jump into that, if you could share with our audience a little bit about your education background and career experience. Darren, I never feel, I never feel disturbed by you. I'm happy to be here. Um, okay, well, I'm Tony O'Rourke. As uh, you rightly said, I'm Vice President for Partnerships for a company called Inago. Um, so my background is publishing. I'm publishing, I'm, I'm like a stick of rock. The word publishing is from top to tail. Um, I've, my, I've spent my entire career in publishing. Uh, I started off working for a magazine publisher in the 80s, uh, a big Dutch magazine publisher who were very active in the UK. Uh, this whole story about them and their relationship with Margaret Thatcher, we'll go back to that later. Oh. Um, and then I, I moved into uh, more uh, database publishing in the 90s and was with a, with a pioneering company called Chadwick Healy, who's now part of a bigger organization called ProQuest, uh, who really were uh, leading the way uh, in terms of uh, delivering electronic content to um, for the academic market, uh, and that was particularly in the areas of social sciences and humanities, where there was a uh, there was a real shortage at the time. Uh, in the in the noughties, two thousand, I moved into journals publishing, and I spent twelve years as a head of sales and marketing for the Institute of Physics, publishing uh, business here in Bristol in the UK, and the rest of Bristol says hi. Um, and then I've worked in healthcare publishing uh, for the Royal College of Nursing uh, and done some consulting work with book publishers, with um, database publishers, with society publishers. And now for the last uh, two years, well, for the last five years, I suppose indirectly, but the last two years as an employee, but five years as an associate with Inago, who provide, who I'll talk about in a few moments. So tell us about Inago and its mission. And Inago is based out of India, correct? Well, yeah, we're, our operations is based out of India, but we're a, an Indian, Japanese, US company. You know, the, the very first office we opened was in Tokyo in 2005. Uh, by the way, this is our 15th anniversary this year. Congratulations. So, thank you. Uh, I, I, I can only claim to be part of it for the last uh, five years indirectly. Um, so we, the, the, the core of what we do is to serve academic researchers. Now you imagine, 20% of the world's researchers who produce content, academic content, journals, books, conference papers, whatever it might be, only 20% have English as a first language. Yet the expectation, the demand is that all content must be delivered in English. So they're at a kind of a, a I won't say disadvantage because some of them speak better English than I do, that's not hard. Um, uh, so our job is to level the playing field, if you like and companies like us, we're not the only ones, but we're one of the bigger ones. Um, so our job is to level the playing field by um, giving them the tools and the opportunities and the resources to help um, make their, their content, whatever it might be, as clear, as legible, as persuasive as possible. So if it's coming to peer review or if it's going for assessment, um, 
the researcher, the reviewer will only focus on the content and not on the way it's written. So Inago is one of the, as a company is part of the Crimson Interactive Group of companies. We've got a translations business. We've got a subtitling business. We did a lot with low work with um, film streaming organizations, for example, in Asia. Um, uh, we have a, uh, and we recently launched an AI business uh, where we're producing AI tools to support the academic workflow. Um, but also we recently launched a life sciences business, a medical communications agency helping um, uh, companies, pharma companies, and as well as uh, drug developers um, uh, to educate their audiences around uh, new drugs, new therapies, new discoveries. So our, our business is around content and delivering and supporting the way authors produce content. And so we're, yeah, we're based, our operations is based in India, but we've got 500 staff located now in 15 offices all over the world. Um, uh, truly international, we've got customers in 125 countries. Um, we work with thousands of, of uh, editors every year. We work with tens of thousands of authors every year. Uh, it's a truly, truly global business. Wow, that's very, very impressive. Thank you for Thank you. for that. So recently, Inago held its first See the Future conference that featured, of all people, a Nobel Prize winner and that's really right. several significant publishing CEOs and, and, and executives. And, and what was the objective of See the Future? Well, the whole reason behind See the Future was to create um, education training resources for the researcher. Now, let me let me take a step back. So we've been producing webinars and workshops for the last I don't know, five, six years. We have a part of our organization called the Inago Academy. And the, the, the objective of the Inago Academy is to produce content that will help the researchers to do their job more effectively. Now, of course, you know, uh, and our workshops program was extremely active up until the end of 2019, beginning of 2020. We were going to universities, hospitals, research organizations all over the world uh, and uh, training them using expert speakers on best practice and the whole process of scholarly communication. Of course, COVID stopped all that. No more workshops. We can't go into a university anymore and stand up in front of 200, 300, 1,000, however it might be, researchers. Um, so we decided, but we, we we decided to put more emphasis on our webinar program, and and that which really stepped up. We got we were getting webinars with thousands and thousands of uh, registrations, um, and then in, in the summer of last year, we decided what what could we do to take it up to another level, and we that's really where see the future came from was to look at what our audience needs in terms of content, getting a better understanding of how they can still do their work despite the. The, the, these COVID circumstances and deliver um, high quality, informative, educative, educational pieces, which will help them do their work. So it really came out of a conversation of, you know, we've, we know how to deliver webinars. We've got the content, we've got, the, we've got the, the, the resources. We just need the speakers uh, who have got the right kind of profile and build it and the audience will come. And something that, that Inago did that was very, very unique. You actually held the same conference in the native language of many different companies, oh, countries. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes. So bear in mind, we are a global business. Bear in mind our customers are in 125 different countries. We do more business in Japan than we do in the US for, for understandable reasons. We do more business in China than we do in Europe. You know, maybe, yeah, that's the level. Um, our business is global. so. We wanted to see the, see the future to be global. We wanted it to be accessible by anybody 
who um, is interested in how to develop their research career, how to develop their research knowledge and research communication skills. So we decided in the end to um, run the event effectively in eight languages. Uh, so we had English and seven other languages, Chinese, Korean, Japanese. We had a Russian event, uh, an Arabic event. And we also had parallel sessions uh, in Spanish and Portuguese. So we were getting a truly global audience. And I think that, that, made us, that makes us slightly different from a lot of other uh, providers in this space. So from your CEO's perspective, I remember um, being involved in, 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 a, in, a, in a planning meeting. Um, it appears that you achieved your objective. And very much so. And, and, and so based upon that, what do, what do you feel that the community, the publishing community uh, came away with? Well, again, I'll take a step back because the publishing community was one of really sort of four core sectors we were, we were focusing on. Yes, we wanted to be able to deliver content which the publishing community uh, would, find, would find useful and interesting. And we, we delivered that. We had sessions on peer review. We had sessions on technology and publishing. But we were, as importantly, and in some cases, in, in, some, in some instances more importantly, we wanted to talk to the researcher. Was, we wanted to deliver content that's going to help them in their research career. Um, so we had a Nobel laureate, Rich Roberts, he won the Nobel Prize for, um, for medicine in 1993. Um, he talked about his career and really gave some really inspiring thoughts and ideas around, you know, what led him to winning his prize. Um, we had a talk from the former publishing director of Nature, um, a global journal, if, there, if, if, if ever there is one, who talked about how to plan their research, how a researcher should plan their research communication effectively. We had... Um, then we're also looking at the use of technology, uh, which is as much for the publisher as it is for the, for the author. Um, we looked at education. We wanted to reach education, uh, higher education specialists. So we had, a talk, we had talks from leading organizations like Quackerelli Simmons, big ranking organization, uh, focusing on the future of higher education from their perspective. Um, but we also wanted to talk about research itself. In fact, one of the um, first speakers to come on board was the, uh, was the head of research compliance for Harvard, who talked about um, uh, how Harvard was able to maintain its research standards and its research output despite the pandemic. So university managers, uh, researchers, publishers, they were the kind of the three uh, circles that we wanted to talk to. And you know, it, I really feel we, we achieved that. We certainly on a global basis got to all of those sectors in big numbers. Wow. And, and, and so co collectively, over the course of those many days um, where this uh, program was broadcasted in all those different languages, how many, how many people attended your, your, your conference? Um, I don't know the final attendance figures, and, and I'm not trying to sidetrack. I know how many people registered. Uh, and of course, everyone who registered is able to download uh, and view the actual sessions themselves. Uh, we'll be able to. We had something like it was just under 20,000 researchers, uh, wow. 1,000 individuals, researchers, publishers, research managers, university administrators uh, attend. And from something like 50 countries, it was a huge, huge. And of course, what we've got coming, we've, we're about to launch later this month, uh, the See the Future um, uh, web platform. And that will allow the Seed of Future brand and ideas to continue because people will still be able to download and see and use and, and perhaps use some of those sessions for their own. Uh, internal research and training. So 20,000 to start with, but that's going to grow and grow and grow over the coming months and years. 
That is awesome. That that is awesome. And so, when when you think about all of the challenges that are currently facing the scholarly publishing industry, uh, the issues that are facing uh, universities, the issues that are facing um, students with accessibility issues, um, where do you feel that? What were the, the the key themes that that came out of the meeting that that you think will benefit? the overall population of, of, of the scholarly publishing community, which is quite, as you say, you guys got five different businesses going, which is, yeah. which, is which is, which is quite nice. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah. In a sense, all of the sessions sort of linked into each other. Um, we had really sort of four core themes. I'm, I'm just aware of my hands. We had four core themes. You No, please use your hands. We're, uh, I'm half Italian, so I speak as much with my hands as I do with my mouth. So, there you go. <laughs> my surname, O'Rourke. Um, there were four core themes. Um, the first one was practical. The, the actual the, the conference started, the idea was what, what tools can we give the researcher to help them during this pandemic? What can we actually help them to do? What can we, how can we educate them? What, what skills can we give them or, or help to give them that will help them in, the, in, this, uh, in this difficult time? So the research during a pandemic was one theme. And we had people like the head of compliance, research compliance at Harvard and uh, Ara Tamasian and uh, the National Council for University Research Administrators, Claire Chen, talking very much around that theme. Um, but we, on, we went beyond that. We also looked at the future of higher education. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, Nunja Quacarelli from QS gave a very, very insightful talk around um, his view in terms of the short term future for education after the pandemic. The third topic was about a research career. You know, in the in the current circumstances with the current research ecosystem, you know how sustainable is is the current ecosystem, and you know how attractive is a research career. We had so many really, and if you saw them, with so many really fantastic talks with um, the the head of publishing from Wiley, Judy Versus, talking about the research ecosystem. Uh, we had Rich Roberts, the Nobel laureate uh, for medicine, talking about his career and you know how how he managed his own career. Sarah Greaves, the ex-publishing director of Nature, talking about how to manage research communication, and and the theme which kind of came out um, almost accidentally, but we're really happy it did around the use of technology in publishing, around the use of AI. I mean, AI is on everyone's lips, um, uh, and we had two excellent speakers, Daniel Ebnetter from Carga and. Uh, Matt Estelle from Hindawi um, talking about the use of technology to support the work that authors do. So it was it was kind of research in the broadest sense, but touching on lots of different areas. And we had a we had a fantastic talk from Emma Wilson, the Royal Society of Chemistry, uh, about open science. Um, the uh, Sarah Teagan from the American Chemical Society talking about the importance and the future of peer review. So it, it was lots of different things, but the one common thing it had throughout was you know, the different strands for research and the importance and how these areas all, all talk, to, talk to each other. So, you know, this was your first virtual conference because uh, yeah. everyone is having their first virtual conference uh, because of what, the challenges that, that, that are happening. Um, what would you say was your, the lessons learned? Um, you know, if you had to grade yourself on, on your SWOT analysis, um, you know, so for folks out there who are really struggling with, you know, do I do a virtual conference? Is it going to be hybrid? Um, what, what, what lessons did you learn? Uh, well, 
I think we kind of went into this with our eyes open, Daryl. You know, we we uh, had been running webinars, which is obviously not the same as a research conference, for the last three or four years. Uh, we've been seeing the kind of usage these webinars have been getting, and particularly certain types of topics brought in a, a much larger audience than others. Um, and we wanted to do something that was joined up. Um, one of the, the, the really positive things for us was just how, was seeing how open the uh, community was, how, how hungry they were to participate in events like this. And I kind of understand that, you know, I, I, if, if, the, if the labs are closed or there's um, little access to, um, uh, to, to, to good quality um, um, conferences, uh, physical conferences, then you have to find something alternatives to training. Um, and I know, and I know there is a certain element of, of Zoom fatigue and sort of webinar fatigue as well, as, as we all know. Um, so we had to make sure that the sessions that we had were as compelling and as attractive as possible. And I think we did that. Um, but there were lessons. There were the things that we, thinking back, we could have done differently. There were some things in terms of some of the planning issues that we could have done differently. Um, perhaps spent a bit more time on some of the detail around some of the planning issues as well. Um, but you know, these. <sighs> If I had if I had a score ourselves out of ten, I'd give it a, a, a solid nine, maybe even nine and a half, because um, it, it ticked every box. Excellent. And um, okay, so now he, in the UK, um, you're 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 quarantined. At some point, hopefully, <laughs> since you guys have the vaccine, uh, things will open up. Um, are you planning to have this event uh, November of of twenty twenty one? We're planning to have the event again. In and fact, what will we, it be? Well, this is a, we're actually talking about uh, the event or possibly the events. You know, we're looking at how we can develop uh, the See the Future brand because it's kind of it's kind of developed a life of its own now. You know, it's 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 become something. It's it's become an entity of its own, and we want to make sure that we can build on that. So yes, we want to have another conference, but we're looking at other opportunities as well, whether that's through our webinar webinar program or or through other channels to in order to continue. Um, uh, that 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 brand and deliver that sort of content in the same way, or even maybe in a slightly different way. But no, we definitely want to have another primary event, um, and that's we're in that sort of thought process now. But we're definitely going to continue to uh, build on that brand. Ladies and gentlemen, we are here with Mr. Tony O'Rourke, the Vice President of Partnerships for Inago, which is a global company. And he is also a very dear colleague of mine in the scholarly publishing industry. And so um, you, you said that this is definitely going to happen again, but you also hinted that there may be some other events. Yeah. Can you, are, are you at liberty to, to share that? No, because we're not, we're not, we're not, we haven't really sort of decided ourselves how, um, how to move this forward. We know we want to do more events. What we haven't decided is exactly how we will um, deliver that. And that's something we can be looking at over, over the coming weeks. You know, at the moment, we're still building the Seed of Future website. We're still um, pulling content into that. And then from there, we're going to think about how we can actually extend the brand. And certainly there will be a 2021 Seed of the Future event, whether it's called Seed of the Future or something else, still to be decided, but I'd like to think it will still be called that. Um, uh, but we want to build on that brand. Seems to me that would make sense since uh, I, the, 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 all of the brochures and the websites, everything was very elegant, you know, and you said, see the future. So, yeah, and I, well, and I, and it's, this is the thing that, sorry, it's the thing about the detail. There were little things because I was so, so immersed in the uh, event, the little things which standing back, I can say, well, okay, uh, with a different resource or a different mindset or perhaps a different set of skills than I had that we could have done 
more creatively, more more engagingly. But you know, it, everything worked. Everything seemed to um, fit into place. So let's let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk a little bit more broadly. And and keep in mind that um, you know you're here representing Inago. So if there's a question that I might ask that you might say, nah, I think I'll pass on that. That that's quite all right. But um, w- what, what are the key issues that you think they're facing the scholarly publishing industry? If you had to say, these are the three challenging issues for the scholarly publishing industry, what would they be? And, and, and what is your magic wand to address these three issues? Just three. <laughs> Just um, three. Because otherwise we'll be here till tomorrow, right? <laughs> well, look, you know, the, the, the great thing about the scholarly publishing industry is that, you know, we're... Um, we're in a we're in a, a sector which has existed for hundreds of years. You know, people have been publishing in journals and publishing in, in scholarly books. You know, journals have been in existence since the 17th century in, in this in, in the same roughly the same kind of sense as we know them today. You know, um, business models are reinventing themselves. And of course, one of the challenges is how publishers are having to address these sort of changes in some funding mandates, for example, you know, looking at shifting from a, uh, <clears throat> a subscription model uh, in the journals world or in the ebooks world to a, to a, a read and publish model where um, there are no subscription fees anymore. It's about licensing publication, publishing in, into books and journals. And, you know, some, some publishers are doing it very well, some are doing it very effectively. Um, smaller publishers struggle because they don't have the same ear. And I think one of the challenges that we're going to see over the next five to ten years is more and more smaller publishers will either not necessarily disappear, but they'll will start. Maybe they'll lose some of their identity by uh, merging or, or moving their 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 activities with into other larger publishers. And it's it's kind of a natural evolution, you know. It's not the survival of the fittest, but unfortunately, it's a, so in this case, it's the survival of the biggest because you've got the kind of resources that you can invest uh, to really you know make sure that your business is secure and along. And then some of these some of these smaller publishers just don't have that, you know. Another challenge, I say specifically, is, is the kind of the expectations of the researcher in terms of, you know, in, in the old world where you submit your article to a journal, you have submit your, yeah, um, you assign your rights to the publisher. Now, universities, funders are insisting that those rights are being retained. So, of course, it does restrict some of the ways publishers can help to reinvest in their own uh, system because those rights just aren't there anymore. Um, and, you know, the sheer explosion, um, one of the biggest, I think, challenges and threats is the sheer explosion in, 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 in output of research. You know, every year research in the last 20 years has grown by three or four percent, you know, and the sort of the sort of organizations that are going to th- thrive over the next decade are going to be those organizations that help researchers to cut through the chaff and get straight to the content that's going to help them to do their research. And that potentially might undermine, you know, some of the smaller publishers who are not being picked up. In those in those new channels, so I can I could talk about this topic forever. Absolutely, but uh, let, let's dive yeah. let's, let's dive dive a little deeper. What about preprints? What are your thoughts about preprints? Preprints have exploded with with COVID, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, I, listen, I've worked in physics. I've worked in physics publishing for twelve years, and in physics publishing, we had the archive A R X I V. Uh, which is now hosted at Cornell University, was for many years hosted down at the New, uh, New Mexico, uh, at the Los Alamos Laboratories. Um, you know, physicists have, have been, um, physicists, chemists, 
mathematicians have been sending preprints to each other by mail for years and years and years and years before, before the, the preprint archives exist. In 1991, you saw the first preprint archive with, uh, with archive itself. And now you've got bio archive, med archive. Yeah, to an extent, to an extent they, they challenge the kind of the, the authority of the journal uh, or of the, of the book, um, because it's now no longer the only place where that content can be found. But frankly, you know, that author could also submit their paper to a, an institutional repository, on their own personal repository, on a subject repository, you know, and the challenge to the publisher is to make sure that the, the world understands that what they're seeing in the journal or in the book is the version of record. Right. Close to the version of record as possible. Exactly. So, well, you, well, you know, um, like, like give you an example, um, uh, Repeta uh, is, is, is a new company that um, allows their, utilizes their AI tool to just determine how open uh, an article is or, or you know, how uh, yeah. re re can you reproduce the results? Because they, they, they check to see if there's a data availability statement. And, and one of the key things is that one of the concerns with the preprints is that during this COVID thing, they felt it, it, it was a feeling that a lot of the preprints were not at the quality that, that they should be. Well, and, and that's, that's kind of the whole process, isn't it? You know, the point that the author sends the paper to the preprint is when they think they finished their research and they want to make sure they, they, they put a marker in the ground and say, look, I've done this. I, this is, can be associated with me. It may not be perfect. And in very many cases, it's not. You know, mm -hmm. there are many instances of, of, the, of the final paper in a, in, a, in, a, in a journal being almost the same as a preprint because it, not, virtually nothing changes. But there are also instances where a paper can fundamentally change. Right. So there's a difference between um, putting a stake in the ground and actually then having the paper validated. Right. Speaking now, about there are, there are areas, I was yeah. say there are areas where the preprint is seen as the point of validation. I mean, again, if I talk about physics in areas like high energy physics, um, for example, where the preprint or, or even um, astrophysics, the preprint mm -hmm. point, because, you know, in certain cases, the paper doesn't really change very much between the, the preprint and the final version. Speaking of stake in the ground, you know, there's a new company called Underline that is uh, establishing a uh, digital video library repository of, of conference lectures. What, 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 you know, what, what do you think about that being part of the scientific record? Oh, I think it's, it's again, it's a natural evolution. It's another channel. It's another set of resources for the, for the library, for the information manager to gather. So universities typically have been storing recordings, videos of, of lectures. My, my daughter recently finished a, a master's degree from the University of Manchester. And if she, you know, the, the, the second half of her master's degree was all done from home, either through live video streams like this or downloaded lectures. So Underline, what Underline is doing is creating another really useful uh, repository for um, content to be made available. I think it's a, it's a natural evolution. Wow. It's good to hear. That is very interesting. Um, what final thoughts would you like to leave with our audience about Inago and see the future? What, 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 should, what should we expect over the next 12 months? Well, look out for another event. We've got uh, big plans for 2021. Uh, more fantastic speakers uh, about uh, issues which are going to address um, the, the broad research community in many, many different ways. Uh, so look out for those, for, for LinkedIn, for Facebook, across social media, for news around the event. 
and hopefully we'll get a, an even bigger audience next time. Wonderful. I think you had a very big audience first time. By the well, way, did you happen to know um, Adolfo Rodriguez from UNAM in Mexico? Uh, not personally. But not I personally. Um, I don't know if you're aware, but he passed away recently. Oh, bit, I'm sorry to hear that. And um, what I would like to do is to close our program with uh, a copy of the program that they're going to have a memorial for him um, on on Monday. He was he was a dear friend of mine um, as I gained through during my time at Elsevier. But ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank Mr. Tony O'Rourke for coming on our program to talk about the great things that are going on in Nago. Thank you for coming on, Tony. You're very welcome, Daryl. Great to see you again. Ladies and gentlemen, that wraps it up for this week on Leadership with Darrell W. Gunter. And keep in mind that um, you can view the program at any time on iTunes. Look for Leadership with Darrell W. Gunter, and uh, you'll be able to catch all 299 shows that we have. So I uh, want to wish you a great weekend, but remember, leadership begins with you, WSOU, 89.5 FM.